You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Morning. Go ahead and take your seats. As you're doing that, if you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. At the same time, our middle school class is dismissed. They're going to be meeting down the stairs here, so then middle schoolers, you can make your way over there now. Um, currently on Sunday mornings, we are studying through the book of Colossians in our series titled Crux. That's one of the things we like to do here at Whitefields is study through entire books of the Bible, let them speak to us on their own terms, get the whole thing in its full context. That's what we've been doing, been studying through this letter to the Colossians here in the New Testament. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, I suggest you use that Version Bible app. We have live notes in there. If you go to the live section, you'll find our church in there. You can follow along, take notes on your phone. Also, if anybody needs a Bible, we can get you one. We've got some at the back. Just go ahead and put your hand up if you need us to bring you a Bible, and uh, that way you can follow along with our study. Now, the reason we call this series Crux is because the word crux, uh, what it means is the most important point of a matter, the bottom line, the most important decisive point at issue. But interestingly, the word crux is also simply the Latin word for the cross. And I think that's really interesting. That is the message of this book, by the way, that the cross of Jesus Christ is the crux of all of history. It's the crux of our lives in particular, and it's the crux of our eternal destiny. So would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're a God who speaks to us. You're a God who is not far, Lord, but a God who has come near to us. And thank you, Lord, that we don't have to work our way to you, but Lord, you have come near to us. Lord, we don't have to climb to you because, Lord, you've reached down to lift us up to yourself. And so we thank you for this, and we pray that as we study this message of the gospel this morning, Lord, that you would make it come alive in our hearts so that it wouldn't just be stuff that we know in our heads, but that it would be stuff that's true in our hearts that we realize it's not only true, it's true for us. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, it would affect and impact every area of our lives and that we would live for your glory and for the good of other people. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So several years ago, and I might be dating myself a little bit on this one, but, you know, Alanis Morissette, anybody remember her? Canadian uh, singer. Anyway, she had a hit song, and it was called Ironic. And if you remember the song, what you remember is that the most ironic part of the song was that none of the things she sang about were actually ironic at all. Right? Okay, let me, let me explain what I mean. For example, she says, you know, isn't it ironic? It's like rain on your wedding day. It's like a traffic jam when you're already late. It's like when you need a knife, but all you can find is spoons. The ironic thing, really, is that none of those things are actually ironic at all. That's what's really ironic. Those things are just kind of like a bummer, like darn, but they're not really ironic. See, what's ironic is that she didn't really understand what irony actually is. That's ironic, don't you think? Now, now here's a better example of irony. I've got a few examples for you. I've got a couple pictures. I found some photos online. Okay, this one says uh, it's a repair shop, maintenance shop, and it says, we can fix anything, but please knock really hard because the bell isn't working. Right? Okay, next one is, uh, this is the College of Architecture and Planning, but apparently someone wasn't very good at architecture or planning, because if they had been, they would have made enough space to fit all those letters on there. Uh, okay, here's a, here's a third one. This is the last one. Uh, this is a device for opening those impossible-to-open vacuum-sealed packages, which is conveniently packaged in one of those impossible-to-open vacuum-sealed packages. 
If only someone would have thought about that. Now, that's ironic. You know what else is ironic? Uh, focusing on the shadow of something rather than on the thing itself, right? The thing which is casting the shadow. Imagine if I had just come home from a long trip or you'd just come home from a long trip and say my wife and kids are so excited to see me. They haven't seen me in weeks. They run out as I'm walking up the, the front walkway there and, uh, and they, they run out to greet me and a few feet in front of me they fall down on their knees and they start kissing my shadow. That would be weird and they would say oh you know we've missed you so much and I'd say well wait, wait, wait a second if you love me so much then why are you interested in my shadow why are you obsessed with my shadow and not with me I would say there's something shady going on here and I'd be like it'd be kind of like if you were at the beach right and you're standing on the beach and you're looking at your phone and you're looking at pictures of the ocean on your phone when the beach is right the, the ocean's right there in front of you I'd say you're not getting the picture Right, that was another one. I'm just going to keep riding this wave, talking about the ocean. That, there's the real ocean, right? The, the photographs of the ocean, they're only a dim reflection, a faint glimpse of the real thing, which is right there in front of you. Why would you focus on the picture when you've got the real thing right in front of you? Now, that would be ironic. It would be ironic for my wife and kids to obsess over my shadow when I'm standing right there in front of them. I'm the substance which casts the shadow form. For me, there wouldn't be a shadow. See, a shadow is nothing really in and of itself. It's the result of something else which is actually substance. Now maybe you say, well, that would be weird and that would be bizarre and nobody would actually do something like that. But the thing is this. A lot of people actually do that in regard to God. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. That's what our text is about. And the title of today's message is Moving Past the Shadows to the Substance. Let's go ahead and read Colossians chapter 2, starting from verse 16. We'll read our whole section today at once. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, then why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. There are three things that we see in this section which we're going to be discussing. The first one is this, the common thread in all religions. Secondly, we're going to talk about how appearances can be deceiving. And thirdly, the unique power of the gospel and how you can experience it. So the common thread in all religions, appearances can be deceiving, and the unique power of the gospel and how you can experience it. Uh, this book is a letter which Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in the region of Colossae, which is in southwestern Turkey. Now, he was writing this letter in response to a concern which was voiced by the pastor of the churches in these regions, who was a protege of Paul's. His name was Epaphras. And Epaphras was concerned because there was a teaching going around in that area where he lived and where he pastored this church 
uh, that had him worried. And here's what the teaching was. It was causing some confusion, some consternation amongst the Christians as to how they should think about it and what their response should be to it. The teaching was essentially this. It said, you know, no one religion really has all the truth. Um, all religions basically teach the same thing anyway, so what we should do is we should just combine them all. We'll take the best practices from each religion and we'll mix them all together, and the sum total of them will be better than each of them on their own. After all, of course, every religion has part of the truth, and so like a puzzle, if you just put all the pieces together, then you'll get the full picture. Now, see, you, you, one thing we need to understand is culturally, the Roman Empire was a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. People moved around within the country or within the empire, and in, in many ways, it was very much like our society today. And one of the prevailing philosophies in the Roman Empire, because of their, you know, multi-ethnic nature, was this, that in order for there to be unity in a mixed society— no one should say that their tradition or their beliefs or their religion are any more true than anyone else's. They're only different. In other words, you can believe whatever you want, but don't say that what you believe is the only true way to believe. And for this, re for this reason, Christianity was very scandalous in the Roman Empire, and, and for the same reason, it's scandalous in our society as well. Because in the midst of a society that said, you cannot make exclusive claims, Jesus came along and he did exactly that. He said that he was the one and only way, the only truth, the only way to have life. He said that no one could come to the Father except through him. He said there are two paths in life. There's one that leads to eternal life and there's one that leads to eternal death. And if you want to go on the one that leads to eternal life, you have to come through me. That's what he said. Uh, he said that God had sent him, and of course you might know John 3.16, who, whosoever believes in him will have eternal life. But do you know what he said right after that? He said, whoever believes in me will have eternal life, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Right? So, I mean, he, he's coming into a society where the prevailing notion, the prevailing culture of that day is that you cannot make exclusive claims, and he went completely against that. And he did make exclusive claims, but not only did he make exclusive claims, he was also very inclusive in his invitation for people to follow him. It's another thing that was countercultural. In that society, and still in many societies around the world today, religion is considered to be something that you don't choose. It's something that you're born into. If you're born into a Jewish family, you're Jewish. If you're born into a Greek family, uh, then your religion was the Greek religion of that time. And this is how many people still think in the world and in many places today. If you're born into an Arab family, you're Muslim. That's just how it is. You're Indian, you're Hindu, you're Irish or Hispanic, then you're Catholic. And Jesus came along and he taught something different than that. He taught something that actually the Bible has been teaching throughout, throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end, and that is this, that there's really only one race, right? This notion of different races is, is a bit misconstrued because in the end there's only one race in the world, that's the human race, and God has sent one Savior for all people. And, and all people should come to Jesus and they should embrace what he did for them and find new life and forgiveness and relationship with their creator through Jesus. Furthermore, uh, unlike other religions, Christianity was not a tradition. It, it was not based in, on you know, traditions and, and stuff like that. It was actually based on historical events which had taken place only a few years before this. 
uh, there were thousands of eyewitnesses still around who had seen Jesus of Nazareth in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And Christianity wasn't just a matter of opinion or perspective. It wasn't a matter of tradition. It was a matter of, okay, these things either really happened or they didn't. And the weight of evidence says that they really did happen. And so you have this clash between these people who said, hey, you know, since all religions really basically teach the same things, and, and religion is just kind of a tradition that you're born into, and, and no religion has the whole truth, none of them are really truer or better than any other ones, uh, they're just kind of slight variations on the same themes, then why don't we just bring them all together, and that way we can honor everybody's traditions, and we can all live in peace and harmony together. Does that sound familiar at all? It, it should sound familiar because there are very many people today who say the exact same thing. So Paul is writing to address this issue, and the main thing that he wants to communicate is this. He wants to communicate why Christianity is different. Why Christianity is different than any other philosophy, any other tradition, or any other religion. How Jesus is incomparable, and how the gospel is absolutely unique. And he begins in verse 16, as we read, and he begins with the word therefore. And you know what you do when you see the word therefore? You've got to always ask the question, what's that therefore, therefore? Which means this, that because he used the word therefore, what he's saying is he's going to, what he's going to say next is the conclusion that he's drawing based on everything he said until now. Now the common thread in all religions, Paul says, is this. All religions are about questions of food and drink, special days, festivals, with new moons, Sabbaths, rituals and rules, rather than relationship. And they can be summed up, he says, in this phrase. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They're about asceticism, asceticism being self-discipline or self-neglect, and they're about having mystical visions and experiences. Do you know what the common theme, though, is amongst all of these things? The common theme is you. It's your performance, it's your accomplishments, it's your experience. And Paul, he refers to this both here in verse 20 and earlier in the chapter, as we saw last week in verse 9, he refers to this as the elemental principle of this world. And what is the elemental principle of this world? It's, it's basically this, the law of cause and effect, that you get what you deserve. This is the most basic elemental rule of nature. If there's any common thread throughout all religions, this is it. You, you might call it karma. You might call it what goes around comes around. You might call it that uh, the universe is going to repay you for whatever you do, whether good or bad. But every religion in the world has this common theme. Your spirituality and your standing before God is based on what you do or what you don't do. And your effort, by your effort, you can reach out to God and work your way up to the divine. But here's where Christianity is different. The message of the gospel, the message of Christianity, is not that if you try really hard, then you might be able to work your way to God. The gospel is that God has reached down to you in love and he has raised you up through him, or through Jesus Christ to himself, as an act of love and grace. Now, now let me ask you this. This being the case, right, that wh what do you think it means for how we relate to other people? If God loved us even when we didn't deserve it, when we couldn't earn it, then what does that mean for how we treat other people, how we show kindness? Do we only show kindness then to people who deserve our kindness? Or like what God did for us, do we, do we reach out to people who don't deserve our kindness, but we give it anyway as an act of love? And clearly the latter. 
the common thread in every religion is what you must do in order to reach the divine. But Christianity is different. Christianity is about what Jesus did for you, how God knelt down to you to pull you up out of the pit because you weren't able to do it for yourself. How God came to you to save you and to lift you up to himself. Now think about this. When religion is about your observance and you having visions or about your level of discipline and performance, think about it. Who is the hero of that story? Who's the hero of that story? You are. When you, when you succeed, when things go well for you, who do you stand to thank for that? Well, in that case, you stand to thank yourself because you did it. You made it happen. You performed well enough. You didn't touch. You didn't taste. You didn't handle. You observed all the right things, and then things worked out for you. Congratulations. You caused it to happen. In other words, you are your own hero. You are the savior in that story as long as you do well enough. But now think about the gospel. It's a completely different story. Who is the hero of that story? Well, it's Jesus. He's the hero. He's the victor. He's the one who overcame. He's the one who shared with us his own victory. He's the one who pulled us out of the pit and raised us up with himself. And he made a way for us to know him and, and to uh, know what he did and, and by what he did for us. It wasn't the other way around. He did it all. So that's a fundamental difference. The core message of Christianity, the crux of Christianity, is the message of the cross, what Jesus did for you. And it means that Jesus, in Christianity, is your Savior. He's not your personal assistant, right? He's not your personal assistant who comes alongside of you to help you to have your best life now. It's not that you're the hero and he's your sidekick who kind of gives you a little boost. Rather, he's your Savior, now, whereas the common thread in all religions is this message of here's what you need to do in order to justify yourself, the message of the gospel is that God has provided a way for you through Jesus to receive justification and you receive it by faith. Rather than self-righteousness, he provides you with Christ's righteousness as a gift of his grace because he loves you. Now, here's the crazy thing. Now, we've been talking just for the last several minutes about how this concept of self-righteousness and self-justification, which is the common thread throughout all religions, is the antithesis of the gospel. It's the antithesis of Christianity. But here's the crazy thing. Sometimes Christians, in spite of that fact, they also adopt this approach to God. In, in Christian circles, we call this legalism. And here's the crazy thing. Legalism, if you look at it this way, is more similar to paganism than it is to the real message of Christianity. Because legalism follows that same common thread which is found in all religions. That if you try hard enough, you can justify yourself. You can earn your way before God. You see, legalism is more than just a bad habit. Legalism actually contradicts the gospel. And so as Paul has been telling us of the glories of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us, how he took the record of our debt and nailed it to the cross, now he says this, Therefore, therefore, considering what Jesus has done for you, don't you think it's, it's incredibly silly to think that your whole standing before God is dependent on what you eat or drink? I mean, don't you think, that in light of what Jesus has done, I mean, come on, it's just kind of dumb to think that you have to earn your way before God by keeping this day or this festival or that special event. Now, maybe you say, well, wait a second. 
what about the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament is full of stuff like this. Laws, rituals, ceremonies, things that needed to be kept up. There were sacrifices that had to be made. There was a Sabbath day that needed to be kept. There were festivals throughout the year which you had to observe. There was a kosher diet that you needed to keep. Certain things couldn't be eaten. Certain things couldn't be touched. Certain things couldn't be tasted because they were impure. And what it tells us here, what Paul's telling us, is that all of these things were shadows. They were foreshadowings of what was to come in Christ. In other words, they were pictures, they were images, they were hints and teasers and previews and tastes of what was to come. Those things were not the end in themselves, they were the means to the end, and the end was to point people ahead to a substance which was to come, which we now have in Jesus Christ. This is actually one of the reasons why I love to study the Old Testament. Here at the church we've studied a couple books of the Old Testament and my plan is that for our next study we're going to go and do another one in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, when you study the Old Testament, knowing about Jesus, it's kind of like you find these Easter eggs, if you will. You know, that's what they, they call them in the movies, right? These things that are hidden in there that you find and, and you explore and discover how each story and all the details in some way points forward and foreshadows Jesus Christ. You know, it's been said that reading the Old Testament is kind of like watching the movie The Sixth Sense. I don't know if you guys seen The Sixth Sense, but I don't want to ruin it for you, but if I do, it's kind of your fault because the movie came out like 20 years ago. So if you haven't seen it, that's kind of on you, right? But uh, if you haven't seen it, let me just give you a quick rundown. Here's the story. Uh, the movie's about this boy who says that he can see dead people. And he starts going to a psychologist because his parents are all worried about him, right? And the psychologist talks to him and kind of helps him out. But at the end of the movie, there's this major plot twist. This is the spoiler alert right here. You come to realize that the psychologist has actually been dead the whole time. And, you know, the boy sees dead people. The psychologist was dead the whole time. And the boy was the only person who could actually see the psychologist at all. And then when you realize that point, you're like, wait a second. And you have to go and watch the entire movie all over again. And that second time you watch the movie, you see it in a completely different way. As you watch it the second time, you notice things which you didn't notice the first time around because you have now this crucial piece of information which makes you see everything differently. You, you notice that in the movie, for example, no one ever looks at the psychologist except for the little boy. You didn't notice that the first time around. You notice all these little things that seemed like insignificant details the first time through, but the second time you watch it, you're like, wow, I didn't notice that before. That's how it is with the Old Testament. Once you realize that it's all pointing to Jesus, then every time you read it after that, you're like, wow, that's... I didn't notice that before. I thought that was just an abstract detail. I thought it was just didn't matter, but now I realize the significance of it. All the sacrifices, all of the cleanliness laws, each of the festivals, the Sabbath day, even the details in the architecture, they were planned out. They were foreshadowings. They were hints. They were there to whet the appetite of the people for what was to come. So that after it did come, they'd go back and they'd read it and they'd be like, oh my gosh, I never realized this before. And you read it completely differently when you realize that it all points to Jesus and how he would redeem us. See, the book of Hebrews, if you're interested in some reading homework, read the book of Hebrews. It's all about showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Jewish laws and the rituals from the Old Testament. For example, you have laws about cleanliness, 
Laws about ritual cleanliness. And they pointed to the fact that our default condition as human beings is that we are unclean. And no matter how many times we wash ourselves, we default to being unclean. But the problem is, in order to be in fellowship with God, we have to be clean. And yet, no matter how hard we try, there's no amount of scrubbing that we can do on the outside of our bodies that can make us clean on the inside. We've got a fundamental problem, basically, because you cannot stick the Q-tip far enough in your ear to reach your brain and wipe away those unclean thoughts. There's no way to get the soap into your heart, and if you tried, you probably wouldn't survive, right? And that leaves us with a problem. We can wash ourselves outwardly, but what are we going to do about the uncleanness on the inside? We're incapable of doing anything about it. Is there any way Is there anyone who can help us, who can cleanse us on the inside? Because until that happens, we will always be unclean. And because of that, we'll always be cut off from fellowship with God. We'll never be able to have a relationship with God. And see, the Old Testament just kind of leaves us with this cliffhanger. Well, you've got a problem. What are you going to do about it? How how are you ever going to solve that problem? And you're like, I don't know. Or or the sacrifices, the the Old Testament law established for us an understanding that it's not enough to just say, I'm sorry. It's not enough. If you've done something wrong, somebody's got to pay. Atonement has to be made. And and if it's not you shedding your own blood, then somebody else is going to have to take your place. Of course, this is also foreshadowing what is to come when the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes on the stage and takes our place so that he can take atonement for the wrong we've done. And there's the Sabbath day, the rest from our labor, right? Hebrews chapter 4 tells us specifically, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. In him, we have true rest from our work beneath our work, our work of trying to justify ourselves through the various things that we do. The common theme in all religions, the labor of trying to prove yourself and earn your way before God, Jesus gives us true rest from that. And you can go on and on, and and we will eventually, but each and every one of these things, not only what's found in the Old Testament, but actually each and everything that you and I do to try to justify ourselves, whether it's through our, our work or through various things that we do to try to prove ourselves, all of these things are only shadows. They're only faint glimpses which point us to Jesus and what he did and what he accomplished for us on the cross. He is the substance to which all of the shadows point. And like my wife and kids coming to meet me as I walk up the walkway towards our house and falling down on the sidewalk and kissing my shadow, if they would only follow the shadow a little bit further, guess what they would find? If they followed the shadow till the end, they would find me, the substance, the real thing. And in the same way, if you follow the shadows all the way to the end, what you will find is that those shadows lead to Jesus. If you stop at the shadow... You're not going far enough. You see, it isn't that these things are bad. It's just that they're shadows of what was to come. And now the substance has come, and so it doesn't make any sense for us to focus anymore on the shadows. It would be like if you had a picture of your spouse, and you just love that picture of your spouse, you know, and you you got this framed picture, and you carry it around, and you look at it all the time, and you look at it when you're lying there in bed, and you set it up on the table and eat dinner and look at the picture while you're eating dinner. Well, that would be fine, I guess, except if your spouse was right next to you in the same room, and then that would just be weird, right? Like, that would be bizarre, because rather than engaging with your actual spouse, you're just looking at this picture and obsessing over it. You see, a picture is fine when your spouse isn't around, 
but only as a reminder of who they are. And that's what it's like when people are focused on the shadows which point to Jesus rather than on Jesus himself. You know, if you want to eat a kosher diet, if you want to honor the Sabbath, then you should go for it. If you want to abstain from certain things, then you should do it. But don't miss the substance for the shadows. Don't think that doing those things justifies you before God or makes you any better than anybody else. See, every desire of the human heart, every effort to try to reach God, they're only shadows of who Jesus is and what he did, and it's only in him that you can find the fullness and fulfillment of it all. It's only in him that you can be justified and made right with God. The antidote to self-righteousness is for you to fix your eyes upon Jesus and see who he is and what he did. He is the true and ultimate hero. So embrace the gospel. To embrace the gospel is to embrace Jesus as the hero of your life, to embrace him as your savior and say, because of who he is, because of what he did, I will follow him as my Lord. So that brings us to our second point, and these second two are going to be uh, much faster. In verse 23, he says this, these things, this kind of outward self-righteous religion, he says these things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But he says this, they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. So outward religion is powerless to actually make you a better person. In fact, outward religion tends to make people kind of worse people, really, uh, subtly feeding your pride. The Pharisees are a perfect example of this. Now, when we hear the word Pharisees, they're kind of like, you know, we, we just beat the Pharisees to death with a stick, right? These guys are terrible. We think of these automatically, just these evil people who oppose Jesus. But the thing you should know is that in their day, Pharisees were highly respected. I mean, people looked up to them and considered them to be the most holy people around. It, they were like the rock stars of Judaism. Like if you saw a Pharisee at the airport, you're going to go try and take a selfie with them posting that thing on Instagram for everybody to see, you're going to ask him to sign your Torah and to sign your dreidel. You know what I'm saying? When people in that day thought about Pharisees, they thought, wow, now those are some spiritual people. Those are the really spiritual people. But Jesus came along and he said about the Pharisees, he said, no, actually, they're not spiritual at all. Because Jesus could see that their religion, so-called, was all about exalting themselves. It was all about their own glory. It was all about letting people see how dedicated they were and how much they afflicted themselves and how they could feel justified before God if the other people could see them and be impressed with them. And Jesus looked at that and he said, there's nothing spiritual about that. He says, that is completely carnal. See, here's the thing. The most stringent religiosity, the most stringent self-denial and discipline can often coexist with the most extreme spiritual pride. And so Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You know, think about that picture he's painting. A whitewashed tomb. On the outside, it's pretty and white and clean. But on the inside, there's nothing but smell and rottenness and death. See, we sometimes think that Satan's master work is the drug addict in the gutter. That Satan's, you know, forte, his master work is the prostitute on the street. But in reality, Satan's greatest triumph is the self-righteous person with a self-focused religion. Because in that case, it's all about them. It's all about thinking that they have justified themselves before God because of their works, and therefore they don't need a Savior because why would they need to cry out for God's grace at all? 
Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 18. He said that two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And uh, the Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You can imagine they're probably within earshot of each other. At least thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy, right? But the tax collector, he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all I get. It's interesting, he's praying on the street corner, he's praying out loud, he's putting on a show. He wants other people to see and to hear what he's doing. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Think about it this way. You could say that for your soul, self-righteousness is a far more dangerous disease than alcoholism. Self-righteousness is more dangerous than alcoholism because the alcoholic person recognizes that they are in bondage, that they have a problem, that they need help, but the self-righteous person does not recognize that they have a problem. Whereas the drug addict, the prostitute, the criminal, the thief, they know that they've blown it, that they're not right with God, that they need salvation and redemption. The self-righteous person believes that they're just fine. And that's actually a much more perilous situation to be in. You know, one of our politicians recently said in an interview that he had never asked God for forgiveness because he had never done anything that he needed to be forgiven for. See, there's more hope for an addict and for a prostitute who beats their breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, than there is for a self-righteous person. A self-righteous Christian think about this, has actually more in common with a self-righteous atheist, they have more in common with a self-righteous Hindu than they do with someone who really understands the gospel of God's grace. Outward rules and, and regulations, they can suppress bad behavior, but they have no power to actually change the heart. They only deal with the symptoms, they don't deal with the root issue. An outward religion may appear good outwardly, but appearances can be deceiving. Because outward regulations have no power to change who you are on the inside. It has no power to transform your will, to transform your desires. It never penetrates your heart. It never transforms your life. If anything, it only leads you to be a self-righteous person full of pride. So what are we to do? What are we to do if we don't want to be just whitewashed tombs who look good on the outside but who are dead on the inside? If we want to be actually transformed and changed on the inside too, what are we to do? Well, that brings us to our final point, and that's this. The unique power of the gospel and how you can experience it. In verse 19, Paul says that the unique power of the gospel is found in this. It is found in holding fast to the head from whom the whole body grows nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and it grows with a growth that is from God. He contrasts this with people who are, he says, quote, puffed up with, without reason in their sensuous minds because of their own asceticism and worship of angels and going on about visions. So as, as opposed to self-righteous person who's focused on themselves and, and, and puffed up and boasting about how spiritual they are, the unique power of the gospel is found in holding firm to Jesus. Paul calls him the head. You know, 
head is unique amongst parts of your body in the sense that you can live without a hand or two hands, you can live without feet, you can live without arms and legs, but unfortunately you cannot live without a head. And as long as the body stays connected to the head, the body will live and be nourished and it will grow. The unique power of the gospel is this. In verse 20 he says, In Christ you died to the elemental principles of this world. The power of the gospel is that God transforms us on the inside and makes us into new people. This is the way Paul put it when he wrote to the Galatians. He says, In Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but what matters is a new creation. In other words, he's saying this, their hang-up was circumcision. He said, you know what? If you think that what, Christ- what matters in Christianity is whether or not you're circumcised or whether or not you keep this or that ritual, you've missed the point completely. You've missed it completely. You don't get it. This is what Christianity is about. It's about what Jesus came to do. It's, it's not to make you follow this or that rule. What Jesus came to do is make you a new creation. The unique power of the gospel is that it is able to actually change you, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And the way to experience that in your life is for you to die. The way to experience it in your life is for you to die. What it means to be a Christian is it means to die. It means to die to who you were apart from Jesus. That old life with that record of your shortcomings and your failures and your sins, to die and have it nailed to the cross with Jesus and to receive from him a new life and a new identity, a new future and a new destiny in him because of his death and his resurrection for you on your behalf. Paul says this in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in this life that I live now in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So listen, Don't trade in the glorious hope of the gospel for some cheap knockoff. That's what Paul's saying, and that's the message for us too. Don't trade in new life for a bunch of rules that have no power to transform your heart, and all they'll do is fill you with pride. They'll make you look good on the outside, but dead on the inside. Don't trade in substance for shadows, but follow the shadows. Follow the shadows all the way until the end, till they reach the substance, which is Jesus. And every desire of your heart, every rule about good behavior and whatever you, you should do and you know you should do, don't stop there. Don't stop with the shadow, but follow the shadow all the way to the source, which is Jesus. And embrace the gospel. Embrace who Jesus is and what he did for you. Hold fast to him so that as you stay connected to him in relationship with him, like a body attached to the head, you will continue to grow and be transformed. And it will affect how you live in every area of your life as you're changed from the inside out. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this glorious hope of the gospel, this hope that goes beyond just what we can do or what we can accomplish or what we need to do in order to work our way to you. Thank you for the message of the gospel that you bowed down to us to lift us up. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that we would follow the shadow all the way to the end, to the source, which is Jesus. And Lord, we pray that truly that would be true of us, that we wouldn't get caught up in self-righteousness, being looking good on the outside but being dead on the inside. 
Lord, let, it be, let us be those people, no matter, no matter how long we walk with you, who beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me, and thank you for your mercy towards me. That's the message of the gospel. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here today who, who has never really come to that place of saying, you know what, uh, I, I need to stop trusting in myself. I've been self-righteous. I've thought that I was good because I did good things. But here's the facts I'm being confronted with today. That I, there's not enough good things I could do to ever justify myself. There's not enough rules I could keep to ever be right with God. But thank you, Jesus, that you did it all for me. So I receive that now. I receive your grace to me. I receive the gospel and I celebrate it. I pray that if there's anybody who needs to pray that prayer today, that they would do so, even as we sing this last song. And Lord, we ask that uh, truly this song would come as in response to the gospel as a prayer from our hearts. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series Crux, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.